the local tradition of my monastery, Abbey of the Holy Trinity, has been not to be too cut off from the world, and I think that's important. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today I'm speaking in good faith with the Right Reverend Casimir Burness. Father Casimir, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're more than welcome. You have a very interesting past, not only because of your religious vocation, but also because you're a fan of model airplanes, you keep up on technology. I can see that though you've lived in the monastery, not been totally cut off from what's happening. Yes, that's true. Uh, in my monastic order, we follow more or less the same rule. We have 175 monasteries of men and women throughout the world, but each one, like other aspects of society, develops its own local traditions. So the local tradition of my monastery, Abbey of the Holy Trinity, has been to uh, not to be too cut off from the world, and I think that's important. Tell me about your early childhood experiences with religion. What made you decide to seek out a vocation of a monastic life? Well, I was born in Chicago to a a very traditional uh, Catholic family. My background uh, is uh, Polish on both sides of the family. Both my grandparents came from Poland in the late 19th century, And I moved around the country due to my dad's uh, job, which was that of a ship's officer. So I I feel privileged to have uh, seen a lot of the country before I entered our monastery, which is an enclosed monastic uh, community. Uh, Even after I entered the monastery, I did a good deal of traveling on business and uh, education. And uh, so I think that from that point of view, I, I think I have a good overview of, uh, of our country, of its various uh, parts. I went to high school in Portland, spent a year at Notre Dame before I entered the monastery. So I, I think that a general overall cultural background is a great help, great help when it comes to religion in general. It keeps a person, I believe, from becoming too provincial. Tell me about your sense of spiritual things. Did you always believe in God? Well, my background being a a monastic background, and of course before that being a Catholic background, uh, always implied the existence of God. It was just taken for granted. And as I look back over uh, the many years I've spent in monastic life and uh, the uh, studies I've made and so on, it's uh, convinced me more and more. I really never needed convincing about the existence of God. I think that people who deny the existence of God are the ones who have to prove the point, not those who believe in him. And I think that's been true, well, for at least 2,000 years and probably 3,000 and more years if we include uh, the Jewish people, the Israelite people, then the Jewish people. Uh, because, after all, the Jewish people are the very basis for uh, Christianity. I wonder if you'll tell me a little bit about the order you joined and why you decided that was the order for you. Yes, I was making up in my mind what to do in high school. I 
uh, even considered perhaps one day becoming an engineer, going on to college and so on. Uh, but then uh, I went to a, a Catholic high school in Portland uh, called Columbia Preparatory School. Uh, it was affiliated with the University of Portland, which of course today is a very going concern. Uh, it, it made me think about things religious. I was taught by religious priests and brothers, uh, the same priests and brothers who teach at uh, Notre Dame University. And so I was impressed by their life and so on, their life of education, dedication and so on. So I, I believe that in some way I would wish to become a priest and to serve the church in that function. Then I began to read about the monastic orders, uh, the Trappist order or Cistercian order of the strict observance, as the official name is, and I was very much impressed with their life, uh, total, total dedication every waking moment to God and to the things of God. And that's what really occasioned my applying to the Abbey of the Holy Trinity. I can imagine people thinking, well, I do believe in God. I'm, I'm glad to make a place for God in my life. But my goodness, 24-7. <laughs> what do you think about that? I mean, they might say, don't you ever get tired of constant religious observance? Uh, yeah, uh, let, let's put it this way. We as Catholics, we trace everything back to the New Testament and even before that to the Old Testament. Uh, there's a famous saying that... If you can't find it in the Old Testament as fulfilled in the New Testament, well, it's not really true. And we have to go back to the New Testament itself, and I firmly believe that there are many ways of being a Christian. And that is shown by the New Testament itself. There is Christianity according to Matthew, Christianity according to Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, Peter, and so on, uh, all an attempt to understand the message of this messianic prophet Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, so there are many ways of being a Christian, and we see that in the early church. So in the early years of the, of the, uh, the church, obviously, there was no formal monasticism, obviously. It began in the third century in Egypt, where certain people, both men and women, wanted to follow Christ, as they believed, in a more perfect way by a return to New Testament values. There's also a famous saying in the early church, which was emphasized at the Second Vatican Council, Ecclesia Semper Reformanda, the Latin for the church is always in need of reformation. So, in a sense, the monastic life, which I pursue, was an attempt to reform the church at a specific epoch and to go back to an earlier age, uh, a supposedly more pristine age. And that's always been the history of the church. The church has always been open to reform, genuine reform. You're 87 now. How old were you when you entered the monastery? I entered the monastery in those good old days, way back when, when people not only accepted religious vocations, but even secular vocations. That was the time when you went to high school and you graduated, and if you were going on to college, you chose a major and you knew what, what you were going to do with your life. And that, so that was my situation. I was Actually, I graduated from high school at 17, went to Notre Dame for a year, 
and I entered our monastery at 19, which was not considered an anomaly in those days. Uh, as I repeat, even even uh, from the secular world, if you wanted to become a lawyer, you got set on a, a track to become a lawyer. People today now, they wake up in their mid-40s and they still don't know what they want to do. Did you ever consider it a great sacrifice or over the years, 60-plus uh, years of monastic life, that it was some sort of a sacrifice to do what you were doing? Uh, yes, it was a sacrifice. It was uh, known at the beginning what the sacrifices would imply, a celibacy, what we call poverty, but which is, a, which is one of the monastic vows, but which is really not so much poverty as I call it an attempt at frugality of living, which I think people understand better. And, you know, many people today are, even in a secular sphere, they preach frugality, the good use of our natural resources and so on. And, of course, obedience is also one of the monastic vows. But you work for IBM, you kind of have to be obedient to the, to the top, uh, the top <laughs> echelon, don't you? You see, so no matter what you do, you're, uh, you find yourself faced with these same uh, natural realities. So I, I didn't find it a particular uh, sacrifice because there were so many interesting things in the monastic life. Uh, our liturgy, especially our education, our constant reading of monastic tradition, Christian tradition, and so forth. So I, I found that very helpful. Tell me about your studies in Rome. Yes, I, in 1957, uh, ages ago, I was asked by my abbot to uh, finish my studies of theology, which I'd begun in the monastery, finish them in Rome, and then go on for biblical studies. So it was a fascinating uh, period. The 50s for everybody was fascinating. The, uh, the United States was riding high. The, the Korean War had ended. The Vietnam War had not yet started. Everyone in Europe loved Americans, you know, where they'd still remember our contribution to winning the Second World War. So I went to Rome and enjoyed uh, the experience. I spent two years finishing theology, then two years at uh, biblical studies at what is called the Pontifical Biblical Institute, acknowledged even in the secular world as one of the top biblical institutions, uh, training institutions in the world. So it, it was fascinating because I, I, I must say, I tell people Rome is the greatest city in the world. I've seen a number of them, both in Europe and, of course, in this country. But the greatest country in the world for one who loves history and architecture and art, Christian art, secular art. I wonder if you would talk us through the course of a day, from early morning until, until dark, at the monastery. Yes, uh, we have uh, a schedule which today can be modified. It doesn't have to be the exact schedule of every other uh, Trappist, Cistercian monastery in the world, uh, but nevertheless, they're quite similar. We, we get up at 3.30 in the morning and have our what we call uh, vigils, which is the first, uh, what we call a part of the divine office. 
And this divine office is uh, separated into seven parts distributed throughout the day. And it's based on scripture, uh, scripture readings, readings from the patristic era, the early fathers of the church. It consists of hymns. and uh, So generally we would spend about two and a half hours a day, but uh, once again divided throughout the day, uh, along with a daily mass, uh, which would be quite early, about 6.30 in the morning. Uh, so that that was one of the three great divisions of the monastic life according to the rule of St. Benedict, which we follow. And one of them is what the, what is called the, uh, the divine office, uh, this uh, singing of the psalms and so on. The other one is called Lexio Divina, or uh, sacred reading, which includes all sorts of education related to religion. And the third one is, of course, work. <laughs> so we have to work for our living, and our particular order demands that we don't rely on others for material support, but we, as best we can, make enough uh, money, have enough finances to support ourselves, and also to help others in need. Tell me about the work at this particular monastery. Yes. Uh, originally, monastic work was mainly agricultural, just like it was for, 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 the, for European and American uh, society, was, uh, was agricultural. And uh, for a long time, we... Uh, raised uh, alfalfa and other grains uh, in order to support both a beef cattle herd and a very successful dairy herd for many decades. Then we began to shift emphasis into other things, always because after all, the economy shifts, doesn't it? As we as we know well today, so we went into things such as. Uh, uh, chickens uh, for for egg production. Uh, we went into a honey uh, business, creamed honey, mainly sold by ma mail order. So a number of these little things. Uh, and uh, uh, fortunately, over the years, we were always able to well support ourselves and to help others. And actually, in just a bit of research I've been able to do, to actually be very helpful to the tune of six figures to local agencies that that accomplish good, which I think is very amazing. Yes, we found that out, uh, especially as uh, the time uh, approached when we realized we would have to close. Not only our, uh, our financial uh, uh, background was very good, but then, of course, we also realized... Uh, uh, something from the sale of our property and uh, buildings and so on, something which has already been accomplished for, I guess, going on two years now. Uh, so yes, we were able to make uh, substantial donations to people in need, to several organizations in Ogden, and uh, of course even uh, to other uh, more needy monasteries of our own order. So for, for that we were very glad. I like to think that uh, those uh, years when we used to sweat out in the fields picking up bales of hay uh, was not simply a, a spiritual exercise, but also uh, eventually could help other people. Would you think back, I wonder if you can tell me 
your parents' feelings as you talked to them and said, this is how I'm going to be directing my life? Because obviously you could be sent, you could go to various places, and that's a bit of a sacrifice also for the family, I imagine. Yes, that's very true. And perhaps when people are young, uh, as was the case when I joined our order, that wasn't realized enough. No, that's completely true. There's always a certain uh, disappointment. But at the same time, a rejoicing, especially my mother was very supportive. And uh, once again, I make the comparisons with uh, secular life. Uh, People go off, they may join the military, um, may see their family very little afterwards. After all, everybody, uh, most people are getting married and there's that split in the family, which can be quite traumatic, uh, can't it, for for many families. So uh, uh, from that point of view, yes, there was a certain uh, split there, but it was well well worth the, uh, the sacrifice, I think, on both sides. I wonder if you'd tell me what, what activities made you feel closest to, to the Spirit or to God as you would go through the course of a day or a course of a year. I, I think personally, uh, well, uh, the participation in the sacred liturgy, you know, the divine office and the daily mass was very important, and especially uh, access to... Uh, again, Lexio Divina, uh, uh, spiritual reading of all sorts. I was a voracious reader, and uh, the, the, the simply uh, people who are not Catholics and don't realize the Catholic tradition, which goes back 2,000 years. We, we have the tremendous writings of the early fathers of the Church, uh, the medieval scholastic theologians, the monastic orders. It's a vast, vast... Uh, uh, field of study and uh, inspiration. In fact, every year I, I might say that at uh, Kalamazoo, um, Michigan, at Western Michigan University, there's a huge uh, gathering of scholars who deal just in such things as monastic history. And of course, many of our monks participate in this yearly uh, gathering of uh, scholarship and uh, people dedicated to understanding more about Christian monastic spirituality. So it's a real, real world in itself that most people aren't even aware of. I've read about certain orders, and for lack of a better word, it seemed that they had taken upon themselves as part of their work to pray in the place of people who don't pray, to fill the world with prayer, to to petition God for the well-being of mankind. I'm Wondering if there are there particular aspects like that that were part of your practice at the monastery. That's a, an important question because there's a lot a lot of misunderstandings about that. And now, yes, or, uh, let, let me say this: originally, monasticism did not have this idea of its prime function being intercessory prayer for others or for the church. Uh, no, it, it was uh, simply an attempt to live the Christian life as they understood it from the New Testament in the way I might have mentioned earlier. But later, and I would say much later in, in the life of the church, perhaps we're getting into the 16th century with the rise of, let's say, the Carmelite order. That idea began, it looked, people took a look at the world at the time, especially the time of the Protestant Reformation, and they said, well, monks and nuns don't seem to be doing anything. 
And so, well, okay, maybe their their function should be precisely that, to pray for others. Uh, that's not to be disdained, but I, I've never believed that that's any, anything near the principle of function of, of monks and nuns. I, I think that the very idea simply of giving a witness by living a Christian, a fervent Christian life should be enough. And even, let us say this too, uh, uh, we follow the rule of St. Benedict. Uh, that is a rule from the 6th century. So it's been in existence for 1,500 years. And in that rule of St. Benedict, there's a provision for taking care of guests and visitors. And of course, originally in an era where the monastic guest house would be functioning as an inn as people traveled from place to place. That tradition has never been lost. It's been continued in what we call today uh, monastic retreat houses and so on. So every monastery does have that outreach to the secular world by having a monastic guest house or retreat house where people can come and share for a time in the life of the monks. And I think that's an important point. As you've talked with people who might be taking a retreat, I I don't know if that would be a week or two weeks or a month, is it hard for people to withdraw from their daily life as you've observed that? Is it a shock to their system? Uh, from from the many uh, guests and retreatants I've met over the years, I, I would say no. They they it's just the opposite in a sense. They they appreciate the chance to get away from the noise and the turmoil that they experience in their daily lives. Necessarily, of course, because they're they have their jobs and, and family obligations and so on. No, I think they they really appreciate that. Uh, so for them. Uh, being away for several days or a week or perhaps in rare cases uh, for a longer period. No, they they thoroughly uh, enjoy that and very much appreciate it. Do you have favorite moments or favorite stories from the New Testament or the life of Christ that, that, that you refer to that are sort of touchstones for you? Yes, I would say that there are many of them. Uh, since my part of my uh, training has been in, in biblical science, uh, I, I do a, a huge amount of reading still and get books from various sources in uh, New Testament studies, Old Testament studies, and so on. So I, I would simply say in general, uh, more, more than in particular, uh, we are constantly learning more and more about uh, early Christianity, uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's, it's a huge... Uh, academic specialty, which people may not realize, in Europe and the United States. And uh, there's a whole flood of books constantly being published on particular themes or uh, exegesis of various passages. To me, that's what's especially fascinating. And from time to time, I get, uh, I run across a book or article by some learned scholar that really uh, grasps me grips me and perhaps helps to solve a problem that has been in my own mind. We all have problems in in our own minds, don't we, that are bugging us, you see. And we do have those moments of uh, illumination, those uh, 
what I call peak experiences, which I think a psychologist has referred to them. In a sense, they're life-changing or illuminating moments, which gives us spiritual insight. And, and for me, that's, that's going on as I read and, and proceed along the paths of, of trying to get a better, better grip on, on the scriptural background of, of, of our faith. Do you have a story or an example of one of those questions? I think one of the main ones is the, the, the present question still much discussed about when and how the early Christians realized that Jesus is a divine person. And for long it was thought that that perception only came about when Christianity moved into the Gentile world with St. Paul and his followers and other uh, people from, let's say, the first and second centuries of the Christian era. But the great the insight now is coming th- that the earliest Christians may well have realized in their own way that Jesus is a divine person, and they may have realized it because they were Jews, not in spite of the fact that they were Jews and became Christian. Because for me, one of the fundamental principles is that all the early Christians, with one or two exceptions in the New Testament, were Jews. So if something could not be understood in Judaism, there's no reason why we should have to believe it. Why would Jesus of Nazareth have preached a message which was unintelligible to his hearers? He preached himself as the fulfillment of what we call the Old Testament, what Jews call uh, the, the Hebrew scriptures and so on. Uh, so that to me is, is one of the, the great insights. And strange to say, one, uh, uh, a group of Jewish scholars are the ones who today have perhaps seen that most clearly. Uh, whereas Judaism for a long time has said, well, the fact that, Judaism, uh, that Jesus is considered a divine person is owed to Gentile Christianity. But no, it's seen all the, all the background there is within Judaism itself if one looks in the right place. I'm in awe of the length of your service. And I'm wondering, because life goes up and down, you have to have had times where you felt nearer or further from the light of God there may have been times of doubt, or have I made the right choice, or is this is my vocation over for this time? Should I be, be leaving? I wonder if you would tell me ab- about those times and how you worked through those. I no, I've never had any personal doubt about the the reality of my vocation. Uh, for that, I'm uh, very grateful. I can uh, see that others have. I was uh, so. Uh, uh, interested in all the things that I was doing, that uh, I just the thought never crossed my mind. Uh, the monastic life, the religious, the Catholic religious life in general has declined, uh, but I don't think once again that that has to be necessarily decried completely because uh, people are realizing that in our Catholic Church, the lay people, and we've always had this strict. Uh, a division between lay and, and clerical uh, and so forth, uh, that the lay people are able to participate more in Catholic uh, life, in parochial life, 
we hope more and more even in the higher echelons of the governance of the Catholic Church. So I, I think that that's something uh, very much to be lauded and uh, by no means to be decried. I wonder as you look back, are there certain parts of the work that you did that made you the happiest? Well, certainly um, being ordained a priest, I, I recall, which was the culmination of a good deal of academic study and so on, that was a, an especially happy moment. Uh, and uh, certainly, and not to toot my own horn, but uh, uh, the obtaining of a, of a doctorate in uh, biblical studies from the, from the uh, Pontifical Biblical Institute was a, a very special moment. It's been suggested that the more some people know or they study, the further they progress in their education, the less likely they are to be religious, although that's not true with all groups. You obviously have a love for learning and research and the academic, the intellectual aspect. Do you have any problem marrying that with the spiritual aspect of faith and belief? No, not whatever. And in, in, in the Catholic tradition, Catholic scholars, even in uh, secular subjects, they don't seem to have a problem with that. I think it's more a question of the secular world. The Catholic tradition has always been strong on the marrying of, uh, of uh, secular knowledge and religious faith. It's always been a great topic of theology on how to do that, and it continues today. Uh, the marriage of uh, philosophy and theology and it's something that's going on all the time. I have so many friends, uh, uh, medical doctors, for example, very fervent Catholic uh, uh, practitioners and so on. Uh, they see no, the, the, the Catholic Church has never believed that there's a contradiction between faith and reason, to put it in a few words, and that continues today. Now that may be for uh, different, obviously it is different for secular uh, uh, many secular uh, people, secular uh, scholars in physics and chemistry, astrophysics or whatever, but they are the ones who have to uh, prove their point, which they have by no means done, and in our, uh, in our opinion, never, never really will do, because they're operating in a completely different world from the one that we are. Today I've been speaking in good faith with the Right Reverend Casimir Burness. Father Casimir, thank you so much. You're more than welcome. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners discussing the ideas presented by our guest. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Is religion an intellectual pursuit for you? Do you find meditative moments in physical labor or in time spent alone or in silence? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Cynthia Winward is a stay-at-home mom, part-time business owner, embroidery and design. Her current goal is to make the perfect curry, Thai or Indian. Stephanie Hadfield is a board-certified lactation consultant. Her kids will tell you she's a hide-and-seek champion. Kurt Johnson is a sports writer covering high school sports at PrepsUtah.com. He was born and raised in Northern California and has a degree in broadcasting from Brigham Young University. 
Paula Johnson is married to Kurt and is also a native Californian. She's currently working on a Ph.D. in neuroscience and has degrees in physics and exercise science. She just seems to collect degrees. She and Kurt are the parents of three, grandparents of five. I've never been a monk. I've never lived a monastic lifestyle. So obviously I can't share that in common with him. But but a lot of times in life, we have this desire to be Christ-like. And we want to have our day revolve around being Christ-like, but then life gets in the way. And so I think about some of the things he shared about giving a witness, his life being a witness. I think we do share that in common, a lot of us in, in, in religious life, of, of our life being a witness for, the, the, for Christ or for who we represent religiously. Yeah, I actually really loved what he had to say about there are many different ways to live a, a good Christian life. I really appreciate the opportunity that we, we each have to kind of decide what that means. I grew up in a family where a lot of, we were all Christians, but a lot of different religious backgrounds. And so as a child, it was interesting to see that we had some different standards. You know, growing up as a Mormon, there was the, the word of wisdom. And in my mother's family, everybody drank coffee. There was a beer with a meal. And uh, it was really <laughs> helpful for me to see that these were good people living a good Christian life because... Um, with my kids now living their insulated Utah life, sometimes it's hard for them to see those differences and see that people make different choices and are still living a great and, and good and honorable life. Stephanie, I kind of, I feel the same way. I, that really touched me as well when he was talking about there are many ways of being a Christian. And, and I feel like I've almost used that as a disclaimer sometimes in my life. I've been in church and I've been teaching a Sunday school lesson and I'll even let my audience know, I guarantee you I feel differently about some of these things than you do. But that's okay. We're all here to learn from each other. You know, if the one thing that as Christians we have in common is a belief in Jesus Christ, I feel like that's good enough. That's good enough for me to relate to others and to try to have something in common with them. Well, I think it all comes down to connection, right? Um, to me, the gospel of Christianity is a gospel of love, and it's connection, and it's it's not something we do singularly, and that's where we need to learn from each other and 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 accepting that we don't all think the same thing, even within a very common religious background. You know, where we we think we're sitting in a room with people that all believe the same thing, it, it might not be exactly the same. And when we're honest and sharing, you know, our, our thoughts and our feelings, I think that that's where the true beauty of God's love and and that connection in spirit can happen. And I think that connection that you're talking about, Stephanie, at least I, I believe that's our faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and having him in a, as our example on and how to live that Christian life is a wonderful connection that really brings us together, regardless of what faith we claim to be a part of. Right. I thought he made an interesting transition from the question he was asked to the answer that he gave. And the question was about, that I'm thinking of, was about intercessory prayer. Mm -hmm. He was asked about the practice of praying for other people and intercessory prayer. And his answer was that that wasn't really, in his mind, a practice of monks and of nuns, but he then went to giving a witness by living a Christian life. And I think that we, we share that in common, is that it's one thing to get on my knees and someone's having a problem and I get on my knees and I pray for them to receive help. But it's another thing for me, and it's hard sometimes, to actually do something, to pray that I can be inspired to do something and, then, or, and to look for ways to do something for them. The fact that he shared that was a great example of that, that his belief, and I think my belief, is that we do something. 
So he actually kind of downplayed the intercessory prayer and turned it into a conversation about living a Christian life and actually doing something for those people. One of the examples he talked about was the guest house at the monastery, and my first thought was, I want to go there. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? And get, get away from the turmoil of the world, because it's hard to separate the secular and the things that we should be doing, you know, the, the Christ-like life. But what touched me about that was how they, he said, take care of guests and visitors. And I think that we can do that if we consider each of us a guest in this world, in this life, and we take care of each other. I think that's part of our mission on this earth. Absolutely. Another thing that, that he talked about, that which as a mother strikes close to my heart, he talked, you know, when he was asked, well, how did your mother feel about you, your parents, except you living this life? And he talked about that separation that happens as, as we move on to different careers and things like that. And, and as my children start spreading out over the country, it's hard for me to have them apart. I want them gathered together and close to me. But I love that he said that it's good for all of us in good ways. And it made me think of sending my, my first child out on a mission to teach the gospel to people in on the other side of the country. We were in California, and he, he was in Georgia. And absolutely, I didn't realize that this was going to happen. But as my child was teaching and learning and growing, our lives were blessed also. So truly, it does. To have that separation does bless our lives from both ends. Well, and I think in addition to that physical separation where, the, you know, the kids are far away, there's also kind of the issue of, and my kids are still young, my oldest is 13, but we have this perception of what they're going to grow into, mm-hmm. right? Like this is our idea and and definitely realizing that we kind of have to let that go a little bit as they become their own person and make their own choices. And I love that he talked about how, I forget the word that he used, but maybe just a little bit of, maybe not sadness, but you know, that kind of wistfulness as your kids grow up, but that his mother still supported him in this right. decision that he made. And I thought that was really special because it takes a lot of work, <laughs> I'm finding, to kind of let go of who I think this person is and realize who they really are and, and to support them in that. So, well, you know, Stephanie, he, he actually, one of the things he said struck me because I'm in, not in my 40s, but kind of, and I'm still <laughs> trying to figure out what I want to do. And, I think, <laughs> right. and I, for, for me, when he said that, he was more saying that, that was great for him that he was 19 years old. He knew what he wanted to do. And as parents, you let kids go to do what they do, and you sometimes get bothered by what they're choosing. Right. You never know where they're going to be when they're 40 years old and still trying to figure out what they want to do. And the question is, have, you, have they been prepared? And you trust in them to be prepared, and you pray that they know where to go to find the answers to, to get to the path they want to go. And we just have to trust them to make choices because they're adults now. That whole 40, 40 and still trying to figure out what you want to do really struck me because that's true for a lot of us. It is true. Yeah. And that's going to happen for a lot of those kids who chose something when they were 19 that maybe their parents weren't quite happy with. Right. <laughs> I, I was a little bit jealous when he said, you know, when the question was asked, at what age did you enter the monastery? And I thought he was going to say 35, <laughs> yeah. you know, and he said 19. And I sat there and I thought, oh, goodness. At 19, did I know anything about what I really wanted in life? I mean, I'm in my 40s now, and I feel like what I would choose now for how I would spend my life is completely different than at 19, how I thought maybe I would spend my life. And there there are growing pains. Like, I feel like I'm going through growing pains right now as my children are getting older and as they are starting to move out. And I feel like, okay, now, like you were just saying, Kurt, you know, what am I going to be when I grow up? 
And in some ways, I think I'm too old to be asking <laughs> that question. I should know this by now. But it's just part of human development, right? This stage is now turning into this stage. And I don't have it all figured out. That was interesting to me. Well, and it sounds like within the life he lived, even though he made this decision at 19 to join the monastic life, there were kind of versions of that within, yeah. you know, where he was, he went to Rome to study and then he came back and, and did different things. So I think we could even still see that example of just room to grow, which I'm yeah. grateful to hear that I'm not the only one that feels like I need that. <laughs> Can we talk about this concept that he was talking about, the having this secular, being able to have live this secular life, but still be devoted to it. So we don't live in a monastery. We don't have this one 24-7 devotion. This is something I struggle with all the time. How do I balance the stress and the demands of my life with living devoted to our Savior and doing the things he's asked us to do, outreaching, helping other people, all the things we're asked to do? How do you do that? Many many ways, I think. One of the things I think he said, and I don't know if this is um, an answer to kind of to what you're bringing up, Paula, is that he said that part of their work, um, he said, picking up bales of hay is not just physical, but it's spiritual. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think we have to delineate between a spiritual life and our, whatever you call it, secular, physical, you know, that aspect of our life. I, I feel like, at least for me, they're all intertwined. I'm sure for many of us, that feels the same as well. Um, I definitely feel a spirituality, a closeness to God. When I am doing simple things, taking care of children, taking, uh, you know, a pan of enchiladas to my neighbor, you know, what, whatever it is, just my tiny little way. I feel like I live this very small life, but I can do those little things that are physical and yet are also very spiritual. I have the luxury of getting paid to work out. I teach aerobic classes at to a bunch of 20-something college students, and it's <laughs> awesome. Except for uh, about a month ago, we were at the end of the semester, and I could just feel the stress in the room. And, and these at this point, the students are coming because they have to. They they fail the class if they don't attend. So they're only, most a lot of them are there only because they have to be there, not because they want to be there to work out. And at the end of this particular day, for some reason, I had put um, uh, the cool down song was called Breathe, right? That sounds like the name of a cool down song, right? <laughs> but the, if you listen to the lyrics of the song, it's, you know, it talks about the, the go, 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 have to get moving, you know, everything going on in your life. And then it breaks into this one part where it says, just breathe, lay it all at my feet. And, um, you know, and that's where we do these long, stretchy, breathy things. And, <laughs> and it was a wonderful cool down. But at the end, I had several of these young girls come up to me and say, thank you. I thank you, especially for that, that cool down song. I needed that. Hmm. One of the things you talked about was how how their finances worked and the whole the, – the vows that they took. Mm. And when they were there, they were making money, finances to support themselves. But then what do you say? Support ourselves and to help others in need. Yeah. And I think it, in my life, I don't have a lot of finances necessarily to help other people in need that I can just go give people. But there's all kind in, in the Christian world, we would hope that we're not trying to make money to get rich, not trying to make money to get a bigger house, a bigger boat. 
a, a, a lot of things for ourselves, but that when we have enough, that we then turn that around and use it to help those people around us who are in need. And, and that's similar to what he was talking about. His life was the vows he took took him in that direction. And I think we take some more vows as Christians that we're going to help those people around us. And it may not be monetary. It might be just something I can do for somebody because I don't have financial means to to pay for it. But I can go to them and I can help them with something that I can physically do and have that as a way of giving for myself. And I, I intertwined through his whole conversation, I hear that from him, is there's things we can do for people as as good Christian people and and help them. And it doesn't have to be monetary. It just has to be willing to look for an opportunity to bless someone's life. Well, and a phrase he used was the good use of, of resources, yeah. which I thought, you know, like you're saying, there are lots of different resources that we can use to serve and help others. And it's not just the way that we always kind of get stuck into thinking, although that is a very good way to help people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I really appreciated his. And I also liked kind of along those same lines, we ta- you know, we talked about poverty and the good use of resources or what he was calling an attempt at frugal living. The other part of sacrifice he talked about was obedience. And, you know, we think that it's such a strict thing when you're living a life as a monk, but he pointed out that in whatever lives we're living, obedience is a part of it. Whatever job you have, you know. A I, job at IBM. Right, <laughs> right. I, you know, I work as a lactation consultant um, with a group of people, and we all have to have very consistent standards and practices and make sure that we're all on the same board. And so there's a lot of obedience to that. And uh, it's it's not always easy when you're working with a group of people to make sure that we're all kind of doing the same thing. And I think it's very similar. Right. Obedience kind of is not a very popular word. Yeah. You know, it, it makes it sound like I'm, I'm a sheep. <laughs> um, I'm just doing what others tell me to do. But so, yeah, I really appreciate that as well, that he kind of broadened that and said, yeah, obedience is just a part of life. You kind of have to do it in every aspect of it. So I appreciated that. You're listening to a conversation in good faith with a group of listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with the Right Reverend Casimir Burness. Now back to the conversation. Maybe I would ask Paula a quick question about, there was one of the things when he was talking about the secular versus the spiritual, and he's talking about just how, how people who have that secular education, he was talking about they had to prove it themselves, right? But that's what, that's what he said. But you're a scientist. <laughs> how does that strike? I mean, for you... You look at that differently than I do as a sports writer, right? I mean, right. well, first of all, it didn't surprise me that he he talked about several doctors who who were very, mm-hmm. you know, who did not have that conflict, and and um, if if you can appreciate the human body, and absolutely, it's a it's a divine creation, right, Stephanie? You have that experience, mm-hmm. right? And it absolutely is, is it's amazing that everything came to comes together to work the way that it does it's amazing but coming from a background of, of physics um, it's that's equally amazing and and to me there also is no conflict if you ask the physics professors on on this campus at BYU they um, they teach also like this is such a divine thing that it's, it's it couldn't it can't happen by chance there, there was some intervention involved. So there, there is no conflict there. And the more you learn about it, the, for instance, um, the, I, I believe everything points to the gospel, to the Savior. Um, you know, everything could be a type or a shadow of the Savior. And um, one of my favorite examples is in chemistry, um, when an electron gets excited, it bumps up to a higher energy level. But when it falls, 
to a lower energy level, it loses light. Hmm. And I believe that there's, right? To me, that's like, oh, yeah, that's an example God has given us that when we let ourselves fall, let our standards down, do something that that's, you know, not um, part of our divine um, quality or characteristic, that we lose some light. I really love that. I think that's beautiful, Paula. <laughs> Speaking of, of light, Paula, when he was asked the question about um, studying, he said that his biggest influences came while he he was studying on his own, and those led to answers of illumination, right? Speaking right. of light again, to be illuminated. And I think that's such a beautiful choice of words. I, I know for myself, um, it, it usually is when I'm alone, when I'm quiet, when I'm reading, when I'm studying, when I'm meditating, pondering, whatever, that those moments of illumination come. I appreciate um, venues like this where I get to talk to people and I, and I love to learn um, through conversation like this. But if I'm being really honest, it's usually when I'm alone and when I'm studying that the most illumination seems to enter my life. So, so you know, I've never been a monk either and probably <laughs> never will be. But that solitude, I think everyone needs a bit of solitude in, in their life for that illumination to come. You know, related to that, I was thinking about a theme that I saw through his. He started by being asked about when he learned about the existence of God. And he talked about something that I'm actually very familiar. I was raised in a, in a Mormon family, and I always took the existence of God for granted, like what he said, right? He said he took it for granted. But then as he went through life, he was convinced more and more and more. And then when he got to the point where he was talking about that illumination, he had a chance to say, I read the scriptures and I get these great doctrinal insights. But that's not how he answered the question. He answered the question with spiritual insights. And I think I find that to be true as well. I think when, when we study things of God, we, we allow God to talk to us and teach us things that might not be the exact words on the page. Right. And that's kind of what I heard from him. And those are those little things as you go through life that convince you more and more and more that this God that you took for granted in your in your childhood is real and he's actively part of your life. Well, and I think that goes back to what he said about there are many ways to be a Christian, right? right? What's going to illuminate you in your spiritual life probably will be different than what will illuminate me. Maybe some commonalities yeah. there. But I think no matter you know what it is that illuminates you or me, Cynthia, I think um, consistency in our practice, I think um, whatever that practice is, I think is important. And that's one thing I think we can learn you know, from his life in the monastery. We talked about getting up at 3.30 in the morning to start <laughs> um, you know, their worship. And I, I don't know that that's <laughs> possible for my life, but maybe you know, a- applying that to my day where I can find little ways to add um, just consistent connection with God and my spiritual side, or is it so easy to get distracted? I'm wondering how our pursuit of religious or spiritual illumination plays out. I'll share one. I had a, I had a question. I mean, I, I really struggle with how can a loving God who, um, who, who, who loves each of us individually um, punish a whole people like the Israelites, right? So I always, I always associate the Holocaust as part of um, of this loving God forsaking, not necessarily forsaking, but um, 
I get upset when I when I read about these um, science experiments that were done on especially twins. Um, these are children, some of them, you know, eight or nine years old. And so I, I went, I had this prayer in my heart. See, here I go. Where are those tissues? Um, why, how can a loving Heavenly Father um, let that happen to these individuals? And, um, and, and because of part of my ritual of praying and reading the scriptures, I had that answer come to me, and I found in the scriptures where another example of that was happening to um, some people. They were, because of their faith, were being thrown into pits, and and these men that were standing there nearby witnessing it, one said to the other, can't you make this stop? Tell Heavenly Father to make this stop. And he said, the other man said to him, Heavenly Father is receiving them. They're standing as witnesses against you know these these evil doers, but in the but he, they're being received in heaven with glory. And to me, that was the answer to my prayer about how can a heavenly Father let horrible things happen to good people? Yeah, um, this happens a lot to me, um, where God answers a question by sending me somewhere to hear something or read something. Um, one one specific example I can think of is I and there's tons is at a time I was feeling particularly alone and down and actually like God wasn't listening <laughs> like He wasn't there like I like I couldn't get I, I wanted the answer I wanted mm-hmm. right and I I didn't I didn't want to accept the answer He wanted to give and I remember I, I would pray about it and I think about it and so many times during that period I'd go to scriptures and I'd read them. And I kind of flip. Oh, that's, I'm not want to hear. I don't want to hear that. But there was one particular scripture that I read in those times, occasionally. And there's a scripture in the Bible, and it's a story about Elisha, and he's with a young servant, and they look out over the hillside, and the approaching army is coming, and they're about to be destroyed. And Elisha says to the young man, "Don't fear. They that be with us are more than they that be with them." And when the man looked, servant looked back out, he saw the angels. <laughs> there to protect them. And and the message I got from that was, look, you don't get to know why. You don't get to know how. You don't get to know how you're getting out of this. You don't get to know that uh, – you don't get to have a specific answer. What you do get to know is I'm here, and mm-hmm. I've got these angels around you, and we're going to get you through it, and we're going to make it work. And I had to learn to trust God, and that was the message. And, and there was multiple scriptures I read during those times that told me the same thing. You've got to trust God. And I, and I feel like it was like what he was talking about. It was one of those flashes of inspiration that I received because of something I read. That wasn't what the story said, right. but it's what it said to me that day. But that happens because of, of I mean, he talked about, you know, the, the scripture study, the, the study of the words. And, and I think we need to have that seeking out the, the word of the Lord. And our lives to be able to under to to receive that help. Yeah, one thing um, you know that helps me as well, and kind of my personal. Um, I, I don't want to say study. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I have always had a hard time uh, staying focused with scripture study. So I'll read it, and I feel like I've checked the box and I've done it. And it's it's been hard for me through my life to feel connected through study. But for me. Um, Personally, hymns, um, singing to hymns and listening to hymns is a way that um, 
that I feel a close connection with God. And so, you know, um, just spending time throughout the day. And instead of, I'm a podcast junkie, I'll <laughs> admit that. And so it's instead of being plugged in to my podcast when I'm doing whatever menial thing, if I can find time just to sing um, to myself while I am working, um, that is something that really helps me feel a deep connection. And, and it's not to say I don't think I should read my scriptures. We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but... Um, uh, you know, it's something we should keep doing. But but for me, that that connection and that real feeling that God is near comes through music. Um, and it's been really sweet. Um, I have a seven-year-old daughter who loves to sing. And she will start singing from wherever she is in the house. Um, and you can just, you can hear and you can just feel her little soul and her goodness. And it just never fails to reaffirm my faith in humanity <laughs> to hear that little voice and, and, and her love for God as she sings. So that's, that's something that's really personally important to me. Having sat next to you in choir, Stephanie, <laughs> I, I can attest to that, that um, I feel that from you when you sing. Yeah, and Stephanie, I appreciate that because to me, music is very similar to that. And I actually, this is probably, I need the tissues here in a second. Um, very poignant and personal to me right now, today, uh, yesterday I got word that my younger brother passed away on vacation in Norway with his family, mm. had a heart attack. Oh. And I, I, I bring that up in regards to music because my mother died when I was about 22 years old, a student at BYU, and she died of cancer. She'd had it for a while. And at her funeral, this hymn is sung at a lot of funerals, How Great Thou Art. Mm. But at her funeral, the women who sang that hymn, it was touching to my – it's become something for me. It's a go-to for me, and it actually has been passing through my mind since yesterday afternoon when I got that call, and it's brought peace to know that my brother is with my parents, and and that hymn, that music does that more for me than almost anything else, so I, I appreciate your sharing that. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, and especially to the Right Reverend Casimir Burness for sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation. We welcome your thoughts and ideas about the program. Reach out anytime via email, ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find all of our shows archived online for listening or sharing byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith or subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced with help from Marcus Smith. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join with us again soon right here in Good Faith.